Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, maker of all things, judge of all men, we acknowledge and bewail our manifold sins and wickedness, which we from time to time most grievously have committed by thought, word, and deed against thy divine majesty. We do earnestly repent and are heartily sorry for these our misdoings. The remembrance of them is grievous unto us. Have mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, most merciful Father. For thy Son, our Lord Jesus Christ's sake, forgive us all that is past, and grant that we may ever hereafter serve and please thee in newness of life, to the honor and glory of thy name, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, if you would uh, be seated, and we have one more message uh, to preach this, this weekend on the Beatitudes, and then uh, we go very naturally into uh, Christmas preparation messages next week. This would seem to be the extreme other end of uh, sweetness and, and, uh, and joy, because I want to talk to you about persecution this morning. Jesus, when he talks about uh, what have been traditionally called the Beatitudes, really gives bookends to those Beatitudes. Now remember that Jesus preached the blessedness of our relying on God so that he would fill us with his qualities. Because that's what holiness is. Holiness is not about our being good. Uh, our our, our uh, 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 being filled with the character of God is our only hope of, of holiness. And so, so the beginning of the Beatitudes talk about our dependence on God. Then the middle of the Beatitudes talk about having some of the same qualities of God. But the end of the Beatitudes... Talk about the cost. Because just as it said at the beginning, blessed are the poor in spirit, that is, those who really know their need of God, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. At the end, it says, blessed are the persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you want to read this, it's in Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. And these are the words of Jesus. <clears throat> blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, I want you to remember those words. There's a lot of people who think they're persecuted for the sake of righteousness when they're persecuted for other, other reasons. Or they're not being persecuted at all. It's just kind of a paranoia. Uh, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now let's define what persecution is and what persecution isn't. That's very, very uh, important because uh, in these days of victimization, uh, all of us feel persecuted uh, by our circumstances, by our histories, by this, by that. And, and, uh, and, and so we've got to just talk about what's life and what's really persecution, uh, as the as Scripture talks about it. You're not persecuted just because somebody has uh, turned on you um, out of, because you've, been, you've said religious things. You may, be, you may be turned on, but not because of your righteousness, but because you're annoying. There's... there's, there, there's I mean, you got to understand, Christians are no less annoying than anybody else. It, it, it doesn't mean you cease to be annoying when you accept Christ as your Savior. You'll be the same people after you're Christian, immediately after you're Christian, that you were before. It doesn't remove your personality characteristics. If you were pushy and obnoxious before you were a Christian, you'll be pushy and obnoxious after you're a Christian. And, and, and until you mature in the faith and you bring on the qualities of God and you're indwelt by the qualities of God, you could very well have a reaction to you because you're annoying. 
That's not, that's not what the Bible terms as persecution for righteousness' sake. Uh, that's just a part of life. We all got to deal with each other. We're all pretty annoying when you take a look at us. And, and just living in the body of Christ is living with annoyance. Uh, it, it, it just happens that way. One of the reasons that uh, I was in Los Angeles uh, this week was to be with some other pastors. And, and uh, th- there was a conference uh, called by Leadership Network to be led by uh, um, Lyle uh, Schaller and Peter Drucker. And this was by invitation, and there was about 50 of uh, us, maybe 60 of us, who were, uh, some were denominational leaders, some were parachurch leaders, uh, some were pastors of the larger churches in the country. And, and so uh, we gathered together to talk about uh, what the future was going to be like in the culture and what the church would be like in the future. And it was pretty, it was three days of very intense conversation. And some of that work was done in small groups, and you had a particular small group, and then my small group was the pastors of the larger congregations, and so, and so one of the things that pastors do when they get together, just to break the tension, um, because we don't get together all that often, and so we, we just kind of, uh, sometimes we share uh, what we have in common, and one of the things that all pastors have in common is re- the receiving of nasty letters every week, and and so we'll just say, okay, so what kind of letters you got this week or the, or the past few weeks? And it kind of breaks the tension. It's not that we don't learn anything from the letters, and we, ne- we never share names. <laughs> I want you to know your names aren't being circulated out there. <clears throat> but we share the contents because some of them are just a hoot. And, 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 and it kinda, we, we kind of commiserate about how tough it is to live with one another, including us. And so, but... Uh, Leith Anderson, who is, Leith is, is the pastor of, uh, he wrote the church in the 21st century, and he's a pastor of one of the largest and wealthiest congregations in the nation. And uh, Leith just broke up laughing. He said, I got a letter this week. He said, well, first of all, let me describe his church to you. It's, it's more, uh, many of the larger churches are like us. They're more contemporary in worship style. Leith has one of the few, very, just huge churches that's very traditional. In its worship style, and they get this like this pipe organ. It's like a city block big, you know. It's just huge. All these pipes all over the place. And of course, when you have a uh, that big a pipe organ, you get that big pipe organist. And I got the maestro of the pipe organ, and the robes flying everywhere. And you know, it's a deal. They toot and they hum and they, you know, it's a deal. And so, um, um, and and they just they sing hymns there. They don't sing praise praise songs, but they sing a few hymns and. And it is their tradition, as it is our tradition, that every week uh, for, uh, for at least one verse of the hymns that the pipe organist just sits quietly while the, the, the congregation sings a cappella so that they can just hear the blend of the voices and so on and so forth. Well, Leith has this guy who is so stingy, so stinking tight-fisted in his congregation. This guy wrote a letter to Leith demanding that that organist not be paid for that verse she sets up. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's who we got to live with. That's not persecution. That's just living with boogerheads. We're all that way. We're just, you know, you can't be, oh, I'm so, but no, that's just life. You can't, you can't be feeling like you're persecuted because you've got, you've got barriers in your way and, you, and, and somebody's making you do stuff that you don't want to do. Uh, you can't be persecuted. I hear, I hear a lot of Christians say, oh, the government's persecuting us. Not yet. 
You can say that if you've ever been in a country that where real persecution comes on. But the government has certain barriers. And when, if any type of church tries to build, there is a blue zillion things you've got to meet up to. Building codes, everybody has to meet up to. Uh, Rick Warren was also part of that group. Rick is Pastor Saddleback. Probably in a few years will be the largest congregation in the United States. And we think we have problems coming in and out. They just went through this huge building fund campaign. Last Sunday they had an offering, cash offering, $2.5 million, $28 million pledged because they not only have to build a couple more buildings, they've got to build a road into their place. 14,000 people a Sunday trying to get in and out of a church on one lane, one road. You think we got problems here? It's a 45-minute wait on that road. And so Rick's talking about, man, and he's a, he's a hoot. Rick is just so much fun. And he's talking about all of these government regulations they had to do just to build. Well, you can imagine what it is to build a road. They're hard enough to build a building, but to build a road with a, a, one bridge is going to cost $4.5 million. But he's not sitting there going, oh, we're so persecuted because we're a big church and they're making us do it. No, that's just life. That's like, you can't feel persecuted because you've got to go through what everybody else has to go through. That's not persecution. Persecution is not depression. Persecution is not spiritual warfare. By the way, don't get those two confused. <clears throat> I hear so many people getting those two confused. Depression is something we all go through. It's a part of life. Sometimes it's seasonal. Sometimes it's clinical. Sometimes it's situational. But it's a part of life. And it's a part of what our flesh has to deal with because we live on this earth. And I hear so many people when they're going through a depression time, they go, this is spiritual warfare. No, it's not. You're depressed for crying out loud. It's okay. I mean, it's not pleasant, but it's okay. Depression is of the flesh. And it ought to be approached clinically with spiritual support, certainly in prayer, but clinically. Don't try to spiritualize things of the flesh, things which should be clinically treated. By the same token, don't try to clinicalize things which are spiritual. One of the ways you can tell the difference is when you're going through depression, God feels distant. And, and you may want, start to wonder if God even exists because He just seems so absent and so inaccessible. And, 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 and you seem so unworthy or, or you start to question life and you just feel out of it. Religious, I'm, I'm sorry, spiritual warfare on the other hand, there is a distinct attitude of rebellion against God. You're mad at God. And you're against God. Think of the nature of Satan. The nature of Satan is not to doubt God's existence. God knows fully, or Satan knows fully well God exists. The, the, James says the demons are aware of it, or believe in his existence. Satan is against God. So if you're going through a period of warfare, you have this attitude, this spiritual warfare, where you're mad at God. You, you become an adversary of God because you feel like he's your adversary. Think of, what, think, think of the Garden of Eden. What the, what the serpent did was sow doubts about God so that they would be against God. It wasn't a matter of eating the apple because they needed to, or eating the fruit because they needed the food, or simply a temptation of the flesh. There was a real suspicion about God. 
So those are, those, are, those are two different things. And when you get those confused, when you try to uh, be clinical about the spiritual or try to be spiritual about the clinical, you can really engender the wrong treatment there. But neither of them is persecution. I'm going to get to persecution right now. Did you, did you ever think I'd get to the point? <laughs> Let me get to the point right now. The point here is that all of us, the Scripture says, if we are living a normal and overt Christian life, will be persecuted. Now let me show you where it says that in Scripture. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. It says, And indeed, all... This is very deep. In Greek, this means all. (laughs) Just kidding. This is very plain language. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, what is persecution? Persecution is a dynamic where we try to quench the Spirit by the flesh. Look at what it says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 29. It's a dynamic that's going on even today. Just as it went on in biblical times and and pre-New Testament times. It says, Galatians 4.29, But as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. So it is now also. What you have in, in, in persecution is a reaction that is political or social that is against an expression of the faith. That's what persecution is. Why? It's a very simple Newtonian principle of physics. For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. If you never have anyone who looks askance at you because of your faith or um, reacts negatively or positively, no one who gives any sign of your Christian faith is because you have not given any sign of your Christian faith. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And so if if you've never been ostracized, if you've never... uh, Uh, noted that somebody saw you as distinct or different, it's because you're not overtly living your faith. That's very simple because 2 Timothy 3.12 is is very plain. Now I want to talk about two different kinds of persecution because there are plainly two different kinds of persecution in the world today. One is a persecution that is horribly political. And I use those words very precisely. There are countries in the world today that are persecuting Christians horribly. Um, Sudan in Africa is one of those countries. There is a fundamentalist Islamic regime that looks to convert everyone to Islam by political and military force. 
and social force. Now, before I go any further, let me say, not all Islamic people believe this. As a matter of fact, Muhammad expressly prescribed the protection of religions. And so, so the vast majority of Islamic people are respectful of people of other religions. But in every expression of faith, including Christianity, there is always a layer of people who want to do things by the ways of the world. And many times they come in the fundamentalist ilk. They're, either, they're at either end of the spectrum, either the fundamentalists or the, or the extreme liberals, who, just as, as uh, uh, um, Orlando showed us last week, that if you, if you look at the universe in three tiers, there's the world, there's the, the principality of the air, principalities of the air, uh, where Satan rules, and then there's heaven. Even though we've been given heaven, we've been given the authority of heaven, we still, we still live directly under the influence of this, of this spirit that would say, you know what, I want you to be able to accomplish things, and so we revert to the ways of the world. And political and social pressure are the ways of the world. The ways to power when you live in this world, is if you can gather more voices to say this than you can to say this, you're the one with the power. You're the one that wins. And so there are many who would, even for matters of faith, resort to that kind of power, which results in persecution. By the way, if Christians do that, that's just as persecutory and just as wrong as anybody, if anybody else does it. I get very nervous when Christians talk about political power because we are not immune to the temptation of trying to convert people by social pressure. I, I am all for every Christian citizen to express themselves at the poll. Uh, people who are called to hold political office uh, bec- as Christians, as, just a, as, as a part of who they are, to do that, that is a calling and a ministry as legitimate as any other. But anytime you start talking about exerting pressure out of a political or social means rather than relying upon the Spirit of God to do the conversion, you're in a situation of persecution. Um, the, the Bible, very, Jesus is very clear. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. The Bible says, not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. That's how things get done in the kingdom. But here we have people who are going to force or conversion, or repress what they see as an alien uh, religion. Then they are literally going into villages, kidnapping children and, and selling them. You can, go, you can go to a market in Sudan and buy children, and they will be the children of Christians. They are raping the women, making the women uh, one of their wives so that those women can never go back uh, to, their, to their territory. It's a horrible kind of persecution for Christians. In Pakistan, some of the same stuff is happening. Torture. Uh, in Egypt, I, when I was in Egypt a year and a half ago, I talked with uh, uh, um, Egyptians who had converted to Christianity from Islam. It is against the law to do that. And if you do that, you lose your home because the homes are all state-run. Uh, not all of them, but the homes uh, of, of workers uh, are state-run, state-owned. You lose your job, which is controlled by the state. You lose everything. The church... If you don't have a church to support you, you just can't support your family. It's, it's, a, it's an oppressive 
um, atmosphere. In China, 50 million believers in China right now. And all of them have to live in very guarded conditions, especially the evangelicals, which is about the only kind there are because that's the only kind strong enough to survive in their faith. But the evangelicals, if they are seen trying to share their faith, which if you're an evangelical, that's what you do. That's where the name comes from. It means good news. I want to tell you some good news because I love you and I care about you and I want you to have the best present that I can offer you. That's what we do. But the government literally puts those folks in prison, tortures them. They don't call it religious persecution. They call it unlawful assembly. They call it, they call it by any other name. But that's exactly what it is. Now, the reason I even mentioned that this morning is that it is our job to pray for those people. Pray for both the persecutor and the victim. Pray, pray, because that's the most powerful thing we can do. That's the most powerful force we have. Pray for them because they're a part of us. Look at what it says in Hebrews 13.3. Hebrews 13.3. It says, remember the prisoners as though in prison with them. When you love somebody, when they're part of your family, what they're going through, you're going through. Many times it's worse for them to go through it for you than it is for you to go through it yourself. Pray for them as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves are in the body of Christ. Their family. Every day, Pray for the persecuted church. Every day, every time you thank God for what you have, pray for what they don't have. Every, every day when you pray for, for, for provisions, your daily bread, your, your spiritual provisions also, pray for theirs. Don't forget the persecuted church. Secondly, there's another kind of persecution that we go through. It's not a political ter- persecution. It is a social persecution. And it's because we belong in a country that is largely secular, that doesn't care enough about any religion to, to, to do anything, which has a tremendous advantage for evangelicals. There's a tremendous amount of freedom here. But what happens here is that we risk social um, and sometime uh, work and academic ostracism when we express, when we precisely express our faith. You don't have to believe me. Go to practically any college in this country that's not a Christian college and write a paper that includes your faith. Watch what happens. Go to any classroom discussion in a state university and take precisely and very pointedly a Christian perspective on an issue. Watch what happens. Many times the students we send to university, the Christian students we, have, we send to universities, have a choice. They can either write what is politically correct and what the professors have said in class and regurgitate that and get an A or a B, even though it's not what they believe. Or they can write what they believe and risk academic uh, ostracism and a lower, literally a lower grade. Now, that is, that is a form of persecution, and that's what many of our students face. It also, you don't have to go to the university. Go, how free are you in your workplace to share your joy about Christ? 
Now, I don't mean to chase people around the desk and say, Jesus, 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 Jesus. You know? That's, again, annoying. Stop that. You're not relying on the Spirit. But I'm saying to just say periodically, God is so good. Or thank God. Or I am, I am so glad about the blessings that God has given me in my life. Just something as simple as that, that gives God the glory he deserves and lets everybody know where you are spiritually. Watch what happens at your work. People may become a little bit more guarded about you. Watch what happens in your social clubs where the two rules of thumb about conversation. Remember what you heard from your grandmother? I tell you what, to get along, you never discuss two subjects, politics or religion. If you stay off those two subjects, you'll be okay. My question for you would be this. If you love Christ, if God is the center of your existence, how do you not talk about Him? How can you keep your mouth from not mentioning Him? That is impossible. Look at what it says in Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. It, it gives us a way to relate to non-believers. It says in verse 5, Colossians 4, verse 5, Conduct yourselves with wisdom. Now it's about to tell you what is, what is the wise uh, demeanor toward an outsider or a non-believer. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Do you understand you're not where you are by accident? You're, you're not just hanging. You're there because God has given you an opportunity to serve and bless those people. And so it says this, let your speech always be with grace. You know what grace is. We're saved by grace. Grace is unmerited favor. And therefore, every conversation you have with someone who is not in the family, well, it ought to be who somebody who's in the family too. It's a conversation full of grace. It's not an arrogant conversation. It's not a condemning conversation. It's not a belittling conversation, a conversation full of disrespect. It's not a conversation that, that is self-righteous. If God took that attitude toward us, none of us would be saved. God himself extended himself way beyond what we deserved and saw fit to give us what we never earned. Why can't we do that for other people? Why do we blame non-believers for being non-believers? Why do we get mad at people? Because they're just doing what comes naturally to them. That's all they know. We ought to be so glad just to be in their presence and, and making up in our mind excuses as we go along. I, you know what? If I was them, I'd do that too. If I was that, if I was, I'd do that too. That's, that's always with grace. Always giving somebody the benefit of the doubt. Always giving somebody more than they deserve. That's the attitude of Christ. That was the person of Christ. But look what else it says. It says, seasoned, as it were, with salt. 
so that you may know how you should respond to each person. Not just grace, but salt. You know what salt is. Salt is the distinction of a Christian. Jesus, a little bit later, and we'll we'll talk about this, said, you're the salt of the earth. If salt has lost its saltness, what good is it? It's not worthy of anything but to be trampled underfoot. Don't ever lose your distinction as a Christian. Don't ever lose that which you have to offer other people. The best thing you have, and that is your relationship with Christ. Live that openly. In this group of pastors, we were talking about, because a lot of these folks have, have had relationships with these pastors of larger churches or larger ministries that have just flamed out, and they, they've committed moral indiscretions, um, and they've, they've just gone down the tubes. So part of our conversation was, how do we guard against that? And one of the pastors, a very wise person, said, you know, you can have all the accountability structures in the world. You can tell, there was a pastor who, who, who had them ask where he was, had, had his accountability partner ask where he was every half hour of every trip he made and still ended up in moral indiscretion. But this pastor said, I tell you what, The only guard against that is that you are on the inside who you claim to be on the outside. That's the only sure guard against flaming out in moral indiscretion. And he's right. He's right. You can't be someone in public and someone else in private and not finally cave in. It's impossible. But let me say that in reverse those of you who have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, if you can't be on the outside who you are on the inside, if you can't be publicly who you are privately, who you are privately will dry up like a raisin in the sun. Because we were made to be expressive creatures. We were made to be able to, to, be, um, uh, to communicate What was the most important thing in our life? So it's important for all of us to be able, when we love Jesus, to speak a good word for Him in every circumstance. When we we, uh, reverence God, to be able to refer to that and to live like that openly. And when you do that, there will be a social reaction. There will be people who will never be close to you again because... Darkness doesn't come near the light, John 3. But there will also be people who live in darkness who are looking for the light. And man, one word about this gracious God, especially out of a gracious person, they're going to come to you. And two things will happen. And I'll close with this. Two things will happen because we have chosen to be open and to be normal with our Christianity. Normal Christianity says, I am every day who I am on Sunday. I am every day who I am on Sunday. Normal Christianity will then engender a social ostracism with some people, a maybe even a repression 
out of a social reaction. But two things are going to happen. Number one, for all the relationships you have to give up, intimate relationships, you're going to find some people who are closer to you than they ever were. And that is absolutely astounding. Not only does persecution help us to know that God is there when no one else is, it also helps us to know who sticks with us through the tough times, especially in the matters of faith. And there's an intimacy in going through something together that you never have in times of ease and in times of acceptance. And that is a wonderful discovery indeed. My son Isaac, 20 years old, about to graduate and, and uh, be the preaching intern here next year, uh, went out to this conference with me. We were all supposed to bring somebody. Remember, there's only 50 or 60 guys. This is by invitation. There's only 50 or 60 guys uh, and, and gals um, who uh, are assembled at this thing. But we're all supposed to bring somebody of the next generation of leadership. And when you're in a denomination, the next gener- generation of leadership is like 45 years old. <laughs> that's, the, that's, the, that's the up-and-coming young guys. Uh, so I, Isaac, who's 20, was obviously the youngest guy by far there. And, uh, and I'm not much of a conference guy, but I, Isaac's just naturally a people get into conversations kind of. So he was all over the place and got to, knew, got to know all, uh, hanging with the black pastors. He loves to hang with black pastors. Uh, he got invited to come do an internship at the third largest black church in the United States. He said, come on. I said, get away from him. I need him. <laughs> so anyhow, here's Isaac. And, he's get, and, and when you got all these kind of old coots, that, that we, we love to give advice. Do you ever notice that? When we get somebody like into that, we don't give them advice. So he's getting advice all week long. After they knew him, they were saying, man, oh, man, this is great. You're, boy, you're outfitted. You're gifted. You're, oh, this is great. I said, Isaac, what is the most common piece of advice you got? And he said, Pop, after they got to know me, they only had one piece of advice for me. Marry the right person. Now, isn't that interesting? I think that's very interesting that out of all of the competency and skill of this group, the one thing they would wish for him is that he marry the right person. Why is that? Because the most important thing in all of life are the relationships we have and how we love. Skills and competencies, they're okay. But these are guys who have been through the fire. He said, Isaac's comment, I said, what did you think about that piece of advice? He said, I've come to believe that advice is simply another form of nostalgia. In other words, here are guys who remember who they married and they're either glad they did or they wish they'd married, you know. <laughs> but he's right. That wasn't just clinical advice. That was a person, that was a personal thing saying, when you go through this, who stands with you will be the prize. They will be, that will be so important. And we need to know that when we're going through tough times, God will place one or two people in our lives that will stand with us no matter what. They're in for the long haul. And those will be better relationships than we ever had just floating along as a group. Secondly, and this is, I'll close with this. I, I knew I'd close uh, uh, in the next hour or two. <laughs> it's important to know that when you go through 
what you're going to have to do without. Not only the relationships, but also some of the respect, some of the reputation. Look at the words of Jesus. He said, Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. There's that qualification again. By the way, it may be of some comfort that people will accuse you falsely no matter what you do. So you might as well be accused because you have a relationship with the Lord as for any other reason. But it says, on account of me, rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Remember this. This all has a heavenly perspective and destiny. Remember that. Remember the words of Bishop Hooper when, they, when, he, about, uh, when, when he was about to be martyred and they were trying to talk him into renouncing his faith because they said death is bitter and life is sweet. He said there is a, there's another life to come that is sweeter and another death that faces me that's bitter. And so therefore, remember that your reward is in heaven. And remember that when you have taken away from you what you thought was important, you'll really find what's important. We never know what we have until we're missing what we thought we had. Remember that. The, the words of Pliny to the, to, the, to the emperor Trajan. Trajan was a persecutor of Christians. And Pliny was, was, a, was an enthusiastic Roman governor who was trying to stamp out Christianity in his province. And he wrote a letter literally to Trajan because he had brought a Christian before him and it was a letter of complaint to Trajan trying to figure out how to stomp these people out. He said, this guy stood before me and I said to him, I will banish you from the country. You will never be in your home country again. And he looked at me and said, yeah, this is my father's world. Anywhere I go, he is. And then I looked at him and I said, I will kill you. And he looked at me and said, I traded my life a long time ago for Christ. I, I'm already dead. It's Christ who lives in me. Do what you want. Then I looked at him and I said, I will take away from you everyone you ever loved. And he said, I have a friend you can't touch. And then I looked at him and I said, I will take away from you everything you ever owned. And he looked at me and said, my treasures are in heaven. Sorry, guess there's nothing you can do, is there? You never know what you have until you have taken away what you thought you had. It's very important for us to gear up for a time together, for the tough times together, and to be prepared for persecution and to stand with each other when persecution comes. Christianity is not about making life easier. I hope... I hope I hope you don't think that. Christianity is about finding what's eternally valuable, even now. When I was, when I was uh, just starting out, I was an associate with this guy, big, big old belly, big old belly guy, big old fat minister. A lot of ministers are fat. You ever notice that? You know why? Because all the traditional ch church does is eat together. Whenever there's a gathering, let's have a potluck. So that's all we ever do. So these guys, bless their hearts, they've been to 50,000 potlucks. And so they all, you know, his little mustache. And he'd always give the same benediction. 
It's an Irish benediction. Maybe you've heard of it. May the road rise up to meet you and the wind be at your back. May God always hold you in the hollow of his hand. I always thought, that is so nice. That is so sweet. You know what? If I, if I were to give us a benediction, it wouldn't be that one. Because I don't, I don't think that builds the characteristics that are eternal characteristics. I'd say, let's go up a hill together. I'd say, I hope the wind gets in our face. I'd say, <laughs> I hope God takes us out of the hollow of his hand sometimes, smacks us around a little bit, because that's what we need. <laughs> it's only as we face the tough times that God shows us how real he is and how much we can love each other. Pray with me. God, thank you for a faith that can not only withstand persecution, but can grow in persecution. Thank you that you have not made us creatures of ease, but you have made us creatures of growth. And thank you that no matter what we're facing, whether it's uh, a proper response to our own faultedness or whether it's a normal uh, period of depression or whether it's uh, spiritual warfare, whether it's persecution, that you're the same God who is sovereign over all and will bring all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. In Jesus' name, amen.
I want to pray with you and for some of you, for you, a prayer of salvation called the sinner's prayer. I want to do this for a couple of reasons. Some of you do not yet have that personal relationship with Christ, but your heart tells you you want it. There's a spirit in you that says, today, you need to get saved. That's what it's called, getting saved. I'm not sure I'm saved, but today's the day I want to make sure I'm saved. And you don't know how, but I want to model for you a very simple prayer and lead you into a very secure relationship with God. I haven't promised you probably anything but trouble today. I haven't promised you happy, friendly singing times today. So this is no emotional manipulation whatsoever, is it? If you're crazy enough to still want to be a Christian, pray this prayer with me. Because you'll know that you're responding to the Spirit of God in you who's drawing you to Himself. And you know no matter what happens, you'll never be sorry. The second reason I'm going to pray it is because many of you will have an opportunity when you're living a normal Christian life, people will see Christ in you and they'll be drawn to you. And many of you are going to have the opportunity to lead to somebody to faith in Christ and lead somebody to a salvation experience. But you may not know how to say the prayer. So listen to me this morning. You don't have to say it exactly like this, but these elements are important. The confession that we're sinners the acceptance of the sacrifice of Christ as payment for our sins, and the faith that Jesus will now live in our hearts. Those three elements are very simple, but very important. Let me pray right now. And those of you who want to pray in your hearts with me and know today is your day of salvation, you pray it in your heart personally. And the rest of you listen and remember so that you can pray this with someone else as God leads them to you. Pray with me. Father, I know I'm a sinner. I know I've lived separately from you many times by conscious choice of what I do rather than what you want me to do. But I don't want to live like that anymore. I really want to accept the gift of salvation you won for me on the cross. I can't earn forgiveness. I know that it only comes as a gift, a free gift, because Jesus has paid for my sin. So thank you for my salvation. Jesus, come and live in my heart. Make of my life whatever you want. <laughs> I have confidence and faith that from now on, you're not only in my heart, I'm living your life. It's in your name that I pray. Amen.